Thank you all and good morning. It's good to be here at First Community Church. We've already had three worship services this morning, each one unique in its own way and yet just as beautiful as, as the rest. I've, I got to hear a little bit of a preview of the music at 9.15. I was so glad I got here in time to hear the choir and both anthems. Would you thank them for the beauty of their work this morning? First Community Church is known around the country and indeed around the world for the power of its music ministry and it is, it is an honor always to be a part of that. Here at the heart of the church, miracles of grace reveal the source of its vitality and its strength. Those words were written in December of 1950 in the Christian Century magazine. The Christian Century has been for a, over a hundred years the voice of mainline Christianity in the United States of America. And in 1950, a survey was done of the, of the great churches in America. One of those 12 great churches was First Community Church. In fact, according to the survey, we received more votes than any other church in the Northeast section from Ohio all the way up to Maine. Uh, we can kind of brag about that 67 years later. I think it's okay. I think it's okay. This church has been known as one where miracles of grace undergird everything about who and who we are and whose we are. It's the power of the Spirit of God that has blessed us for well now over 100 years. Back then, the pastor of the congregation was the inspiring and charismatic Roy Burkhart. Berkey, as everyone called him then and even now, was described in the Christian century as a risk taker. Now, I was a little bit surprised to see that phrase used about him because I've heard so many wonderful things about Berkey and the way he led this congregation with strength and grace and love and what a brilliant preacher and amazing teacher he was, but risk taker hadn't come up. But many of the things that Berkey established back in the day are now considered normal for churches. They were outside of the box back then. They were, in, in fact, in Jackie Cherry's book, she said not everything was received easily. Some of the ideas he, he brought were controversial, controversial, very much so. And yet today we look at many of those things and it's just the way church is done, not only in this church but around the, around the country. For example, we were one of the first churches in America to hire a full-time professional paid youth minister. Doesn't seem like that big of a deal. We have a marvelous youth ministry staff now. We've had great youth ministers in the, in the past. But back then, 70 years ago, no one hired a youth minister. That's something that Berkey did, though, because he wanted to be sure that the children and youth in this church received a dynamic ministry and were strengthened in their faith, given a faith that would lead them well into the future. He also brought a psychological approach to his ministry. He was a trained psychologist. He was a brilliant man, but he'd never been to seminary. Well, he, he knew, he knew the Bible, he knows the Bible, knew the Bible very well, could exegete a, te a text, could, could prepare a beautiful sermon just as well as any other preacher. But there was something revolutionary, something radical, something risky about him bringing this psychological approach to the church. Again, there was a little bit of controversy around that, but it became a part of who we are in this congregation, undergirding much of what we do even to this day. In fact, under Berkey, and really since the beginning of our founding, freedom of thought and discussion were encouraged. People were invited to go ahead and bring your opinion to the, to the congregation, wrestle with your neighbors and friends, struggle if you need to on a, over a disagreement, remembering at the end of the day that love is the only foundation we can stand upon. That's the kind of church we've been for, for 100 years. That, that, that Christian Century article noted that, that both Berkey and the youth minister 
sometimes expressed what might have been considered, maybe even today, rather radical or unusual political positions. They invited a, a, a leader in one of the labor unions to speak to the youth group one night. Uh, Berkey was quoted as saying, there ought to be equal pay for equal work. Some of those kinds of things that didn't necessarily go over real well 70 years ago, except the article said this, and I want to quote it. Uh, this is a line from the article. No one, however, suggested that they look for another job. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of something in there, isn't there? Wouldn't you like to know in between the lines? Was that a conversation? Was there some discussion about that? Berkey also wrote an article on, on the Kinsey reports. Remember the Kinsey reports? about the, the, the practices and habits uh, of, of sex, of, of Americans and their sexual lives? I'm getting nervous just trying to say it out loud. <laughs> this, uh, Berkey wrote an article reflecting on that report. It was picked up in the local paper here, and it was picked up by papers across the land from the East Coast to the West Coast. And again, the Christian Century article in 1950 said, despite that, no one was greatly disturbed. I kind of like that. No one was greatly disturbed. Uh, now, there are a whole lot more tidbits like that that I've found in the research I've done on the history of our church. If you'd like to hear more, you're welcome to invite me to lunch and buy me lunch, and I'll tell you a lot more. <laughs> tell you a lot more. But it's, it's, it's fascinating to me to find that, that, that these revolutionary, risk-taking ideas are really a part of the foundation of who we are in this church. We've always been a church since 1909 that's been willing to push the envelope, uh, step outside of the box, to use whatever cliche you want, to really think beyond just the simplistic and narrow way that too many churches get stuck in. Knowing, knowing that at the end of the day, everything we do, everything we plan for is grounded in grace and love. I believe that's what's behind that famous quote from M.H. Licklider, that we are the church of the infinite quest. We will, we will search for, for infinity and beyond. Thank you, Jim. Jim recognizes the reference. <laughs> we will search as long as it takes to find the love and the grace that God intends to give, not just to us, but to the world. In fact, I would even say that we live in an era when the church, when our church can be a model for the community on how to take on tough and controversial subjects with love and grace and uh, guiding the way in everything that we do. Uh, Washington may not know it yet, but they need us. Our politicians need this church. In fact, I'm kind of challenging myself and I'm challenging all of us today to consider what would it mean if we could become a voice not only in Columbus, not only in Ohio, but in Washington, D.C. What if our congregation could become known as a place where our faith and our grace and our hope and our love guides everything we do and say we can, in fact, have a conversation about politics and not resort to name-calling? That, that illustration alone would be a start for our politicians. In fact, I had lunch last week with a member of our church who's a leading voice here in, in Columbus. He said, you know, there right now is not a moral voice in the city of Columbus. It, it used to be that there was a church, and in fact, maybe even it was First Community back in the day, that could be heard at the center of the public square, not there looking for power, but to speak to power, not there looking for, for more money for the offering plates, but looking to, to challenge our neighbors and friends, to seek out in love and grace, to work for justice. I, I believe our politicians could, could learn from us 
to have a deeper appreciation for the power of faith to undergird society. Too often faith is relegated to sound bites and sort of pushed off to the side, quick and cheap and easy, and then it's forgotten. What would happen if the faith that guides us could guide us in a conversation with our political leaders in this great land? You see, that the part of the issue is that faith sometimes is so shallow in the way it's discussed in the, in the public square. There's a story, maybe you've heard this story before, it's about two senators. One's a Republican and one is a Democrat. They're pretty good friends. They have lunch once a month, and, and despite their differences, they get along well. But the Republicans kind of push on the Democrat a little bit. He says, you Democrats, you don't really have faith. You don't take it seriously. I mean, look at me. I'm a real Christian. I go to church every Sunday. I tithe. I give. I pray. I do all those things. I'll bet, the Republican says to the Democrat, you don't even know the Lord's Prayer. He takes out his wallet, puts a $20 bill right there on the table. I'll bet you 20 bucks that you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. The Democrat, well, he's feeling a little challenged, so he says, you got it, we're on. He takes a breath, and he begins, now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> the Republican shakes his head, picks up the $20 bill, hands it to him, and says, I didn't think you knew it. <laughs> you see, you see, that's the issue. That's the issue. We're fighting over stuff we don't even understand. I'm tempted to go on a tangent here about Washington and the need for politicians to learn how to dive deeply into matters of faith, but we'll do that at, at another time. But that story is a perfect illustration of the way too many of us, let's include ourselves, too many of us use items of faith not for personal growth, but for pushing others aside. It's time that we, we, we get in touch again with the holy and the sacred and discover the power that has been there all along. I'm certain this church can be the very place where our country catches a glimpse of what it looks like to live with love at the center of all we do and say. You know, we've also been a church that takes the Bible seriously, not literally. You just confessed that a few moments ago prior to the baptism. We've always been that church. We've been like that since our founding. In fact, we are a church that welcomes truth regardless of where it comes from, whether it's Christian or, or Muslim, Jewish or Buddhist. Even an atheist might speak the truth and we would agree with their truth because truth is true. And we're not afraid of wherever it may come from. We follow Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, but we listen to the great teachings of the world, acknowledging that indeed that is part of the infinite quest. And where did we get this idea? I think we got it from the Bible. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon? It's in Luke chapter 4. It's the very first sermon that he gives. He stands up and he reads from the prophet, and then he sits down. That was the practice in those days for the rabbi to sit as he preached. And he begins his sermon by telling a story. And can't you just hear the people in the, in the, in the crowds, in the congregation? Oh, isn't this Joseph and Mary's son? Oh, he looks, I heard he was first in his class at rabbi school. He's so good. Oh, he's a handsome young man, isn't he? You, you can hear how proud they are, all the little murmuring going on. And then he begins with the story of the widow of Zarephath. They would have known who he was talking about. She's in the Old Testament. You can find that story later. And he says, the widow of Zarephath, she was a foreigner, an alien, an outsider. She worshiped other gods, and yet God blessed her. Jesus tells another story. He says, do you remember Naaman? 
Naaman was the commander of the Syrian army and camped around Jerusalem, ready to attack a foreigner and an alien, an invader, an enemy, a one, a man who worshiped other gods. And Jesus reminds him of the story and how Naaman was blessed. He's essentially saying to his congregation in his very first sermon, you better get ready for God to bless anyone and everyone because God isn't worried about your narrow-minded views of faith and how God works in the world. God's blessings are going to be given to all. And you may recall that congregation tried to kill him. It's a radical word. It's been spoken for 2,000 years. We are a church that has always taken that path even though it's not an easy path to follow. But according to Jesus' first sermon, we better be ready even now to welcome anyone and everyone from anywhere and recognize that God loves them as much as God loves us and wants to bless them as much as God blesses us. That is who we are. A couple of weeks ago, we hosted an interfaith dinner at Grace Hall. About 150 religious leaders from around the Columbus area. We were happy to host it. I was invited as the pastor of the church to stand up and give a word of welcome. And I found out just a few moments before that welcome that there was some real concern among the 150 who were gathering for the dinner about the events and acts that had taken place in Charlottesville. In fact, the leader of the event caught me as I came in and he said, there are many here who are afraid. They've seen Nazis marching in the streets. They've seen white supremacists and their chants. Can you bring us a good word? And so I stood up in front of that, that gathered group where there were Muslims and Sikhs, Jews and Christians, Protestants and Catholics, Buddhists and others. And I said, anytime we gather around tables like these and break a little bread and share a little food, we are taking steps to save lives. When we can gather in our differences name them, and yet still recognize our oneness in our humanity. When we can tear down the walls of ignorance and shatter the divides of sectarianism, we can save lives. Is it a small step by doing this with a few hundred folks for dinner on a Sunday night? Yes, it's a small step, but it's a step in the direction toward new life for all. That's a miracle of grace. The legacy of those miracles of grace that we noted at the beginning go back to our founding covenant. And this we do, depending upon the aid of our Heavenly Father, who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son for our salvation. You hear that, don't you? An almost direct quote of John 3.16, for God so loved. That's defined who we are since our very beginning. That's one of the founding documents of our church. But sometimes we forget to read to verse 17, John 3, 17. For God did not send the Son to condemn the world, but to save it. Not to condemn. If anyone says to you, Jesus came to divide the ins and the outs, who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, you can tell them for me they are wrong. And then quote John 3, 17. God did not send the Son to condemn, but to save. My faith is based on a God whose love is wide enough, broad enough to welcome and save everyone. Period. Our ministry here since our founding has been one based on love, not fear. We were nurtured and formed in the goodness of God's grace. And that same grace calls upon us to live our lives that way. And that indeed is the key 
It's not just saying these words. It's not just making these proclamations. It's not just saying, oh, that's a nice thing for Sunday morning. Yeah, let's put that in the bulletin. It's about incorporating it into our lives, about practicing it in our behaviors. Jackie Cherry, who I mentioned earlier, wrote the great history of this church. It's a marvelous book. You can find it online on our website. I encourage you to read it this week if you can. She talked all about many, many, many stories. Again, I got some good insider information from, from her about some of the in-between-the-lines parts in, in her book. But then she told me a story about Berkey. Jackie had experienced a tough loss as a young girl, and Berkey became for her kind of a surrogate father. He checked on her. He nurtured her. He loved her. She said, when I finished school, I went into nurse's school, and when I finished nursing school, I, I was going to participate in the capping ceremony. Do you know about the capping ceremony? You know, when a nurse is done, they receive their little cap, something that was done back in the day. She was kind of sad, knowing that she would walk across that stage and ones she loved wouldn't be there. But when she got up on the stage and she received her cap, she looked way back in the back, and who was standing against the back of the wall? It was Berkey. He'd found time in the middle of his day, maybe only 15 minutes to drive over, to stand in the back, and to quietly celebrate with a wink of his eye this new day for Jackie. That's the church we are. That's our church at its best. When we are willing to take the time that it takes to be loving and kind and gracious, to show up for a friend in need, we have become then, in those actions, the very church that God wants us to become. You may be surprised, though, to learn that we were criticized since the beginning of our founding for, such a simple, for having such a simple and clear creed, one based on the love of God. And in fact, according to some of the ancient documents, the old documents of our, of our church, there were people who would write and say, oh, First Community Church, it's not very spiritual. Oh, you're, you're not really a Christian. Your Christian faith will be weakened if you go to First Community Church. We've actually been hearing that sort of criticism since the beginning of our time. In fact, I started here, my first day was March 15th. The first week of April, I got a letter in the mail addressed to the Reverend Dr. Glenn Miles. Sometimes when people put the Reverend Doctor, I think, uh-oh. <clears throat> And sure enough, the letter began by saying, welcome to Columbus, but your church isn't very spiritual. It's not very Christian. I hope you'll be able to help them. Now, I want you to know, this is why God invented shredders. <laughs> I just shredded that letter right there behind my desk, and it's now been recycled. Oliver Wiest, who was the great pastor back in 1915 to 1931, encountered a lot of this same kind of criticism about this congregation. He stood up on a Sunday morning one day and said, the words and examples of Jesus are set before you, and you are expected to apply them to yourself. Jesus gave us the only condition of discipleship, follow me. Now, Reverend Wiest was a kind, gracious, and thoughtful soul, but that's sort of a, a drop-the-mic moment, isn't it? It's like he's basically saying to those people who are criticizing him, look, we're trying to follow Jesus, and if you don't like that, fine, but get out of the way because we're with him, and we're going now. If it's too hard for you, don't be a stumbling block to us. I love that quote. That's our simple call to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Again, not in a narrow, narrow, divisive way, but in a wide opening way that mirrors one whose arms are spread wide to the entire world. Yes, Berkey was described in that magazine as a risk taker. As I said, I was a little bit surprised when I, when I found that 
that information out. In fact, in the 1950s, the church was still described as one that was, was unorthodox. And again, there was some controversy in, in, in around all these bold new programs that were being done. I'm going to say more about that and more about where we are going ourselves when I get to the third week in this series. But here at the end of this sermon, I want to pause. And I'd like to ask, are we ready? Are we ready to dream big? Are we ready to consider whatever risky, revolutionary, radical thing God is inviting us to do next? Are we ready to let our dreams carry us forward to the very vision that God has laid before us? Are, are we ready to dream big? I don't know. I'll confess, the greatest temptation I face is to just be nice. Just be nice. Now, my mom and my wife are sitting out here somewhere. Oh, there they are over there. They'll tell you, I don't give in to that temptation often enough. <laughs> but as a pastor, as a pastor, it's a serious temptation to just be nice. Have everyone like me and everything be just fine. Easy going, you know. Well, maybe that's the issue. Maybe my dreams and yours need to go broader, deeper, richer, grander, riskier. What do we dream of here? What are our deepest yearnings and desires? Our, our, our vision calls us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to the church? He took the church to the gates of hell, that big cave there in northern Judea, and he stood there by the side of it. He gave a sermon. He said, I will stand with the church at the gates of hell. We will descend into hell if necessary to bring this good word, this word of hope and love and grace to everyone who needs it. That was the dream of Jesus. Do we dare dreaming of the same thing, of going to the world, of taking God's love and grace and making it a reality for everyone? Does that dream seem too big, too grandiose? Maybe our dreams are the problem. Maybe it's time for our dreams to change. It's time for us to recapture the dream of this church, a church built and founded on the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, so that we can move forward toward the marvelous vision that God is setting before us. May it be so.